Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States. Episode 3.14, Georgia Enters the Game. Last time, we spent our episode looking at the end of proprietary government in the Carolinas. This week, we are going to be moving a bit further south and introducing the final colony to get onto the board, Georgia. At the end of this episode, all of the colonies that will be in place come the American Revolution will be up and running. In order to keep us caught up on everything, I'm also going to be taking the final few minutes of today's episode to do a very quick run-through of the colonies and remind you of where they all stand. So, let's jump right on in. The founding of Georgia is something of an oddity in the North American colonies. Whereas the other colonies were founded for generally one of two express reasons, either to make a profit or to seek refuge from some kind of persecution, typically religious. There was, of course, always a degree of overlap between the two motivations, but those two things really are the primary driving forces that we've seen so far. Georgia's founding, however, was something a bit more experimental in nature. Yet, even with that said, the colony really does harken back to issues that we have already seen before. Founded by a group known as the Georgia Trustees, the Georgia colony was the brainchild of Parliament member James Oglethorpe. The group, named after then-King George II, came into existence at the start of the 1730s. And as a quick aside, if you're wondering where George II came from, he would become king in 1727, taking over for his father, George I. George I was king from 1714 until his death in 1727, himself having taken over from Queen Anne. The leader of the trustees, James Oglethorpe, was born in 1696 Surrey. Born into wealth, Oglethorpe attended Oxford, before leaving to become an aide-de-camp to Prince Eugene of Savoy during the Austro-Turkish War. Following the war, Oglethorpe would move into a career of philanthropy. It was here that he really had his first taste of the plight of the poor. After being named a member of parliament in 1722, Oglethorpe would undertake a project to reform the often terrible conditions inside of debtors' prisons. Oglethorpe argued that by relocating the poor from productive jobs in the country to more urban environments, it created a dual problem. First, it placed undue burden upon the cities, which could not support the masses flowing into it. Second, it represented lost productivity as this group, now being in an urban environment, had zero opportunities to become productive. With all of these people pouring into London, the city was now gripped with a serious problem of homelessness and poverty. Now, if this sounds familiar, like something that we have already talked about, it is because it is. Way back in episode 1.7, we had discussed the reasons for the rising urban poor. In that situation, the poor were rural farmers and their families that had been displaced during the 16th century under the program of enclosure. You don't need to worry about that program specifically for today. However, the issue of urban poverty had proven to be a constant problem over the past century and a half. The reason why we had discussed urban poverty back some 70 episodes ago is that the Virginia Company rounded up a lot of these urban poor and shipped them to Virginia as the original settlers in Jamestown. This is what created that strange mixture of wealthy second sons and the urban poor living together in a world where, seriously, nobody had any idea how to survive or farm. 
problems of survival being put aside for the moment. In London, this was a major selling point for the project. The wealthy in the city were anxious to get rid of the poor, and sweeping them under the rug, or in this case shipping them across the Atlantic, seemed like a pretty good solution. As it turns out, however, this plan really never had a huge impact as London continued to be a haven for the poor and destitute. Enter James Oglethorpe. The plan that Oglethorpe had come up with was audacious indeed. Oglethorpe and his fellow philanthropists would found the trustees for the establishment of the colony of Georgia in America, better known as the Georgia Trustees. The belief of Oglethorpe and his fellow trustees is that the real reason for poverty was essentially that the urban poor were lazy. The idea is that if you could gather the poor up, ship them off to the colonies, and stick them on some land telling them to work it, it would solve the problem altogether. Not only would you cure the perceived idleness of the poor, but you would also make sure that they were not sitting around London anymore. If everything went as planned, you could eliminate this subset of people from needing charity and assistance to survive, while at the same time adding more people to an already dangerous border in North America. It would help expand the English Empire abroad and, based on the location they had picked out, provide a nice check against future Spanish aggression. In 1732, George II got on board with the idea and established the colony of Georgia. Running south from the Savannah River to Florida, this land had previously been claimed by South Carolina, though it was Spain that actually had nominal control of it up until the 1680s with sparsely located missions. Somewhat surprising, at least on its face, is that South Carolina was willing to allow Georgia to take over claims to that land. As South Carolina had become an increasingly important colony financially, the British were interested in protecting it and its valuable rice trade. Georgia, being founded south of the Savannah, provided a nice buffer zone along the southern border of South Carolina, something that the colonists were glad to have. The colony would further ensure that the Spanish remained held in check in Florida, and that should the Spanish get any more grand visions of spreading their influence north towards the Carolinas, they would first have to go through Georgia. With everybody on board with the idea, in 1732 the trustees were granted a royal charter. Along with the charter came financial assistance from the crown to help make the colony a reality. Georgia would function differently from the other colonies in that it would start out essentially as a proprietorship, but after a period of 21 years, it would revert to the crown and become a royal colony thus hopefully preventing some of the problems that we have seen in Maryland, Pennsylvania, and the Carolinas. There was always going to be an expiration date on the trustees' control over the government. This sets up for a couple of things. First, you are not going to end up with some weird quasi-feudal government being set up in Georgia like you get in Carolina. The government that would ultimately be set up ended up becoming the most restrictive out of any of the colonies. There was to be no assembly. Rather, the running of the colony was going to be completely up to the charitable trust during that first 21-year period. As we are going to see later today, this is going to cause more than a few headaches for our trustees. The colony was also unique in terms of funding. While the trustees were absolutely elites, they lacked the necessary capital to make the project a reality on their own. 
Therefore, what emerges is a situation where the crown itself would foot 90% of the bill for the endeavor. This all, of course, prior to the colony becoming a crown colony. For the crown, they were protected in their investment, knowing that they were not going to be helping an individual get rich. But rather, they were forming a colony that would be good for both London and good for the empire as a whole. Throughout the history of this podcast, I totally understand that it is sometimes very easy to get a rather cynical attitude towards the motivations of individuals. However, in the case of the trustees, these guys really do seem pretty earnest in their desire to do good. The trustees took steps that would help to control the colony in order to hopefully prevent unjust enrichment on a charitable endeavor. This includes putting certain safeguards in place that would limit the size of land holdings to just 500 acres. The point of this was that the large planters that we see dominate in Virginia and the Carolinas would not be able to get a foothold in Georgia, but rather the opportunities would go to the smaller planters. Oglethorpe wanted to see a more equitable distribution of wealth in Georgia that was absent from the other southern colonies. You also see in the founding of the colony that the trustees were really not seeking any kind of personal enrichment. The trustees in their own charter were barred from taking any paid position in the colony, as well as receiving land within the colony as a payment for their services. For those who would be coming over, it really was at no cost to them. Their travel was paid for, and in fact Oglethorpe himself would usher the first group across the Atlantic. They would be given lands, cattle, and enough supplies to sustain themselves personally until they were up and running. The first group would arrive in the new colony in 1733, settling the new town of Savannah. To begin the project, Oglethorpe would largely find himself busy working with the local native tribes, wanting to work on getting a partnership in place with them, rather than just coming in and antagonizing them as we have seen in the past, Oglethorpe did attempt to deal fairly with the local Indians. Luckily for him, many of the tribes in the region were amenable to the presence of the new British colony to act as a check on the Spanish in Florida. Work quickly began on clearing the land and erecting the first houses and businesses. Over the coming year, the colony would begin to grow and attract more and more colonists interested in both the novel social experiment taking place, but also seeing opportunity for themselves to seize upon. While Oglethorpe and the other trustees really do seem to come from a good place, soon Georgia would find itself struggling with many of the same problems that the other colonies had suffered from. The single biggest complaint would come from the overly restrictive government inside the colony. As I stated a moment ago, Georgia lacked any kind of an assembly, but was instead totally in control of the trustees. Within a few years as the colony would grow, this becomes a major sticking point for the colonists, as they viewed the trustees as acting in a manner that violated their rights as Englishmen. There would develop two primary complaints amongst the colonists that would really come to dominate the politics of colonial Georgia for the coming decades. The first problem is in regards to the oppressive rule regarding land rights. The second issue would surround the question of slavery within the colony. To tackle the former first, Restrictive land rights is going to prove to be a major problem. As we discussed before, those coming into the colony were only granted 500 acres. Oglethorpe and company wanted to restrict the development of massive plantations and the income inequality that came along with them. 
This placed restrictions not only on the amount of land an individual could hold, but it also affected how the properties could be broken up. The colonists who received land via the charity were forbidden from selling their land or in any way dividing it up into holdings smaller than 50 acres. The purpose of these restrictions was to keep those who relied upon the charity from having to break their farms up piecemeal in order to make a quick buck while at the same time also discouraging those huge landholders from coming in and taking hold. However, for the colonists on the ground, this was an overly restrictive provision. How could they be a free people with such restrictions on their rights? It is important to understand that this restriction applied primarily to those who were taking advantage of the charity. This is to suggest that there were others in the colony that were purchasing land outright. These people mainly came from the Carolinas and saw Georgia as a place to expand their own holdings. However, they too soon came to hate the trustees. Not having representation meant that for those coming into Georgia, they had little control over the laws that governed them. Furthermore, they were unable to purchase land from the charity landowners. This would become a major problem when those coming into the colony to buy land discovered that it was surprisingly easy to accidentally landlock themselves. However, problems over the land paled in comparison to the single biggest complaint, that they were prohibited from owning slaves. The prohibition on slavery struck at the very core of the founding principles of the colony. Oglethorpe believed that the core cause for poverty was indolence. In his view, the poor were poor because they were lazy. If you stick poor people into a situation where they were unable to be lazy, say a new colony across the Atlantic, their hard work would breed prosperity. Oglethorpe expected that people coming into his new colony were coming there to work. The idea that they were crossing the Atlantic so they could purchase African slaves to do the work for them went against the very founding principle of what the colony was meant to become. This is to say nothing of the moral objections that Oglethorpe personally had towards the practice. For Oglethorpe at least, and probably the other trustees as well, they viewed African slavery as an evil institution. It is interesting in relation to Oglethorpe that his objection towards slavery extended beyond the fact that such practices would further promote the perceived indolence of the colonists, but went to the actual slaves themselves and the morality surrounding the question of enslaving them. The rejection of slavery by the trustees is something that would create a sense of hostility towards the trustees and especially Oglethorpe, who had himself made his home in Georgia. The real problem for the colony is that the majority of the colonists who chose to settle there were not the urban poor from London, but rather they tended to be colonists from the Carolinas looking to increase their own holdings this obviously coming much to the chagrin of James Oglethorpe. The lack of slavery, however, put the colony at a very distinct disadvantage when compared economically to South Carolina. What would emerge, therefore, in Georgia were factions that would challenge both the trustees as a whole, and in particular Oglethorpe, as he was the one really running the project. The main group, though not the only group, that would come to challenge Oglethorpe was known as the Savannah Group. The argument that was being put forward by the Savannah Group in favor of slavery was that needing slaves was not a sign of laziness, 
but rather they argued that the African slaves could better handle the climate of Georgia as opposed to the Europeans. These arguments fell upon deaf ears, however, as Oglethorpe had no intention of allowing slaves into his colony. The standoff between Oglethorpe and his opponents was not going to be some short-term issue, but rather it was something that would come to define the charitable trust period of Georgia politics. In 1741, the dissenters would go so far as to publish a true and historical narrative of the colony of Georgia. This pamphlet was an absolutely scathing indictment of Oglethorpe, who is referred to as their perpetual dictator. The entire pamphlet is indeed one long complaint about the fact that their rights are being trampled by Oglethorpe. They draw comparisons to the fact that under Oglethorpe, they had seen an oligarchy form. In summary, everything that was wrong with the colony was because of Oglethorpe and his gross mismanagement. The publication was signed, The Landholders of Georgia. While Oglethorpe and the trustees would remain steadfast in their defiance of slavery, they soon would have other problems. While Oglethorpe had hoped that the result would be that the lazy in the colony, in his view those who were trying to bring slavery in, those who had caused him so much trouble, would simply up and leave, he found himself disappointed when it was both them leaving, as well as many of those that were doing hard work. For the colonists, it simply made more sense for them to establish their plantations in South Carolina, where there were far fewer restrictions on land, and most importantly for them, slaves were permitted. Throughout the 1740s, the trustees would work to attempt to mollify the colonists' demands by giving in to other grievances. For example, the restrictions on land were significantly loosened, and suddenly there was a much greater ability to have larger plantations. Additionally, one of the earliest ideas of keeping all of the colonists in small towns was abandoned. Under the original plan, the vision had been for small towns dotting the landscape. With the size limits on individual holdings, this was going to be possible. However, with the removal of such restrictions, the colony quickly expanded outward as colonists wanted larger and larger plots of land. The trustees also removed a previously unpopular law that kept rum out of the colony. This, however, did little to stem the anger of the colonists who argued that their rights as Englishmen were being violated by the trustees' decision to prohibit slavery. It is worth mentioning that Georgia was the only English colony that had a restriction against the importation and use of slaves. We have discussed the reasons why slavery was more prevalent in the southern colonies as opposed to the northern colonies. However, that is not to say that slavery was non-existent up in the north. There were slaves throughout all of the colonies. Georgia was the only place where the practice was specifically forbidden. From the perspective of those colonists in Georgia, therefore, they are looking around and taking note that they are being forced to live under stricter restrictions than their brethren anywhere else in the British colonies. What would settle in during the 1740s, therefore, was something of an uncomfortable stalemate, with both sides taking shots back and forth. Oglethorpe and the trustees had no intention of backing off their position just yet, whereas the colonists continued to complain about the trustees' arbitrary rule. Setting aside the very obvious concerns over the questions of morality surrounding slavery, Georgia did find itself at a distinct economic disadvantage 
when compared to its neighboring colonies. Large and thus wealthy planters avoided the colony as the cost of doing business in Georgia was now that much higher. All of this would be compounded by the fact that there was absolutely no path towards representation in Georgia for the colonists. They lived under what essentially amounted to a quasi-dictatorship. All decisions concerning the colony were left up to the trustees, with little to no room for input from the average farmer. It is no wonder that a popular slogan of the Georgia colonists became liberty and property without restrictions. Georgia is a colony that, in so many ways, seems to fit perfectly into that age-old saying that the roads are paved with good intentions. James Oglethorpe and his fellow trustees really do seem like they were interested in doing a good thing. There was, at least on the part of Oglethorpe, a real push to help the poor, and he viewed Georgia as the solution. Oglethorpe was repulsed by the idea of slavery and actively spent his time fighting against it in the colony. His concern was not just related to questions regarding the English either, but Oglethorpe questioned the actual morality of the practice and expressed genuine concern for the slaves themselves. The problem, however, is that from a purely pragmatic standpoint, this policy left Georgia at a competitive disadvantage. Where Oglethorpe and company struggled is that they failed to ever find a method whereby to remedy this in any meaningful way. It was clear that the trustees were not going to institute slavery. However, there appears to have been little done to stimulate the economy otherwise. The fact that slavery did not exist in the colony was always going to put Georgia at an economic disadvantage when compared to the other southern plantation colonies. There was little effort on the part of the trustees to remedy that disadvantage through other means. Rather than coming up with some kind of a plan to close the gap between the slaveholding colonies and themselves, the trustees chose to do nothing. The trustees further failed to give the colonists any kind of voice in their own government. A setup like this is always going to be ripe for factionalism, which is exactly what formed. It put the colonists directly at odds with the trustees and created a tension that would dominate the early history of the colony. The trustees would eventually, and reluctantly, give in and open the colony up for slavery. The decision was made in August of 1750. In making the concession, the trustees would try to place a check on the practice by instituting a rule that for every four African slaves a person owned, they were required to employ one white servant as well. So, why the change of heart? Largely, the decision to acquiesce was twofold. First, there was increasing pressure from Parliament on the issue. Likewise, by the time the 1750s had rolled around, the trustees knew that their time in control of the colony was coming to an end. In 1752, the colony reverted back to the crown per the original charter and became a royal colony. It is worth noting that the decision in 1752 allow for slavery would prove to be one of the very last decisions that the trustees would ever make for the colony. With Georgia's conversion to a royal colony, the influence from South Carolina was almost immediately felt. The government of Georgia under royal authority was set up in the same fashion as the other royal colonies. There was a governor, a council, and an assembly. Almost overnight, Georgia would pattern itself in the same fashion as did South Carolina. 
The hope for small towns to make up the core of Georgia quickly faded as the colonists were far more free to set out and expand. Much like was the case in South Carolina, rice would become a major export. Large plantations would flourish, and with those plantations came a rapid rise in the number of African slaves within the colony. With that, a truly unique, though ultimately short-lived experiment in the colonies came to an inauspicious end. I would like to finish up this week by taking a quick look at the colonies as they stand following the formation of Georgia. This is, for the most part, how the colonies will look when the revolution comes. It also marks something of a turning point in this podcast. Following this episode, I'm going to be shifting from looking at individual colonies one at a time, and will instead begin looking at the colonies as a group. Now, I'll tell you all right now that this is not always going to apply. There will still be numerous times where we are going to be focusing in on a single location for an entire episode, or for a series of episodes. However, we are going to begin seeing the story shift from individual colonies to the greater colonial experience, and how that experience would help influence the march towards independence. By the time we reached the middle part of the 18th century, Crown Colonies had almost completely replaced the previous corporate colonies that we had seen develop. In the wake of the Glorious Revolution and ensuing events, New England had seen its colonies converted to Crown Colonies. Maryland had become a Crown Colony back in 1691, something that we talked about back in Episode 3.1. Virginia had been a Crown Colony now since 1624. As for the Carolinas, well, we had just talked about them in the previous episode, so we should all be well acquainted with that story. In fact, on the eve of the American Revolution, the only colony that was still a holdout was Pennsylvania, despite everybody's best attempts years before to effect that end. The colony that I do want to take just a moment to talk about here is New Jersey, as it has been hanging out in the background of our story. We have never had a dedicated episode on New Jersey. However, it has come up a few times, typically in relation to William Penn. The colony would also be, albeit briefly, a member of the Dominion of New England. The colony had long been divided between East and West Jersey. That is, until 1702 when Queen Anne united East and West Jersey into a single colony under royal control, hence ending proprietary control there. Part of the reason we have really not spent a ton of time on the conversion of New Jersey from a proprietary colony to a royal colony is that it really is not exactly a dramatic event. There was never some widespread uprising in the colonies that would lead to the crown trying to have cast aside a wayward proprietor, as we have seen in other colonies like in Maryland and to some extent the Carolinas. The events leading to New Jersey becoming a royal colony is something that we have actually discussed before. Back during episode 3.8, we had discussed the proposed reunification bill in relation to Pennsylvania. The bill being put forward by William Blathwaite, and don't worry about remembering his name, sought to strip all of the proprietors in English North America of their rights and convert all of the colonies into crown colonies. As we had discussed, this bill was not mere rhetoric either. This was a serious bill and a very real threat to the proprietors. It was enough of a risk that William Penn would quickly pack up and return to England to fight back against it, despite having finally returned to the colonies just two years earlier. 
Well, William Penn objected to the bill and fought back against it to its eventual defeat. The story in New Jersey was different. In New Jersey, the proprietors, rather than objecting to the bill, took it as an opportunity to open negotiations. The proprietors were able to strike a deal, whereby they were allowed to keep their lands along the frontier. In exchange, they agreed to give up their rights to the governance of the colony. The proprietors, who really just wanted to make some money, were quick to accept the deal. With the conversion over to a crown colony, Queen Anne reunited the two colonies. Rather than there being an East and a West Jersey, there was simply now just New Jersey. In order to facilitate things going as smoothly as possible, Queen Anne granted New Jersey a 12-person council. Of the 12, six came from West Jersey, with the remaining six coming from the former areas of East Jersey. Furthermore, in order to aid this reunification, the Queen made sure to move the assembly around, meeting between Perth Amboy and Burlington the former being in the former western colony and the latter being in the east. The colony would share a governor with New York up until 1738. And really, that is just about it when it comes to the dramatic story of how New Jersey became a crown colony. In the coming decades, there would remain some tension between the former proprietors and the colonists over land rights and claims. New Jersey would also prove to be a far smaller colony, sandwiched in between New York and Pennsylvania, both in terms of overall population size as well as in economic prosperity. With the end of the trustee era in Georgia came the beginning of a new period. We have spent this entire podcast to date looking at the growth of the colonies. We have taken time moving throughout North America, looking at who the groups were coming over and how everything developed. Now, however, the board is set. The colonies are now in a position that they are going to be in 25 years later when the American Revolution breaks out. With the exception of Georgia, which was a latecomer to the party, the colonies had largely been in this position since the beginning of the 18th century. However, simply getting all of the colonies up and on their feet is not enough to explain the events that would lead up to the American Revolution. The 1700s would prove to be a time of transformation for the colonies, that would stretch well beyond the transition from proprietary governments to royal governors. Back in episode 3.9, we talked about the coming changes to the colonies during the 1700s. Beginning next time, we are going to start looking more closely at what those changes were and how these changes would completely transform what it meant to be a colonist in North America. We are going to look at everything ranging from the rise of slavery to religious and economic developments, as well as looking at cultural changes as a distinct American culture would begin to emerge. Next time, we are going to begin our look at the changes that the first half of the 18th century would bring by focusing on the question of slavery. Slavery had been around since 1619. However, it is during the 18th century that slavery would become the institution that would become one of the defining political issues for the next century and a half. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time to begin our examination of the evolution of slavery. <laughs>